Well, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to bless the reading and the preaching of his word today. Father, thank you that we can sing it is well with our souls when we recognize that practically speaking, our souls are broken. And yet we had one who came in our place and with his perfect, holy and righteous soul fulfilled all righteousness as the obedient one and then went to the cross and was crushed and took your wrath for our rebellious souls, was raised from the grave that we might have the pardon of sins, forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with you so that we can in him and by your spirit sing it is well with our souls. And Father, we pray that we could come to an even deeper understanding of that today as we consider this passage from Ephesians 4. And we ask this for your son's sake. Amen. Well, if you would, look with me as I read Ephesians 4. And for context, we looked at chapter 3 last week, but I want us to look at verses 20 and 21 and remind ourselves that this chapter division was not placed there by Paul. It was placed there uh, by uh, someone in the 15th or 16th century, and I think it's an unfortunate chapter division. So for context, look with me in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. What is that calling? We see it in verse 21 of chapter 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. In the early 1800s, Napoleon and his army opened a prison that had been used by the Spanish Inquisition. And there they found the, the bones of a prisoner who had been imprisoned for his faith, his faith in Christ. And, and, and all that was left there of this prisoner was an ankle bone that had a chain attached to it. But, but this prisoner had left a witness above the wall where he was supposedly leaned up against. He had scratched in the cave wall there a cross. And in Spanish, he had written above the cross, height. And below the cross, he had scratched in Spanish, depth. And to the left, he had, he had scratched and, and written the words width. And on the right side of the cross, he had written the word breath. And, and so this prisoner had clearly 
been reflecting on Ephesians 3.18, where Paul was praying that we would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And, And that had resourced this man. That had fueled this man as he contemplated God's love for him in his son, Jesus Christ, and specifically Christ dying on the cross for his sins, for his pardon, and that had fueled his capacity to die as a martyr for his faith without denying his master. And, and, and that's been Paul's point in the first three chapters. I mean, he's about to get in our business with Ephesians 4 to 6. And what he's going to call us to do in chapters 4 to 6 is costly. In fact, it's not natural to us. And so what he has done in the first three chapters, he has led us into this theological um, masterpiece where he has taught us about the love of God in Jesus Christ, what he has done for us to secure our pardon, to secure our reconciliation with the Father and our reconciliation with each other. Paul understands that what determines a person's character, true Christian character, that is, what determines a person's behavior and manner of speech and attitudes, what determines a person's walk, as he will use uh, that language, is the order of his loves, the order of her loves. And, And what will capture a person's love for God is not mere commands to love God. Yes, we are commanded to love God, but mere law will not motivate us. What's going to capture our love for God is to behold, is to see, to understand and experience and comprehend his love for us. That's the point of the first three chapters. So that we are now prepared for the commands that lie ahead. You see, Paul is concerned not that we just be recipients of this love, Given the role of the church, we are called to be conduits of this love. And that brings us to the mandate in chapter 4, verse 1, the mandate, as we will see, to walk worthy of this calling. Look with me in verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to, to walk Now, he uses that verb walk five times in Ephesians 4 to 6. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So again, uh, therefore tells us that he is referring to chapters 1 to 3. In light of everything I have just said, in light of chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, that God is able to do abundantly more than we could all we could ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. Given the reality that God's intention is to glorify himself in his son through his church, chapter 3, verse 21, I urge you to walk in a manner. 
In other words, Paul says God does not call us to make bricks without straw, as Pharaoh did the Israelites. You have been greatly resourced. You have been blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ in order to walk worthy of the calling. You have been greatly privileged, but with privilege comes responsibility, right? That's one of the problems with a kind of a socialistic bent that we tend to be on right now in our culture, privilege without responsibility. But in the Christian economy of things, privilege comes with responsibility and hence these commands. These commands, if we take them seriously, are going to be very challenging for us. It's going to be easy to rationalize why I can't do a certain thing Paul's calling me to do. He's going to get into our business. Being the blame victims that we are. Well, the reason I can't do this, the reason I act this way, the reason I have this attitude, the reason I have this excuse for not doing something. And Paul says, I don't buy your excuses. In the very first verse here, he says, I'm not writing from a Roman country club. I'm writing from a prison, a prisoner for the Lord. In other words, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter what your location is. It doesn't matter what kind of people, troublesome people are around you. You have a responsibility as a Christian, given the privilege that you have, given the resources that you have in Christ to walk worthy of the calling. In fact, he's going to give us 39 commands in Ephesians 4 to 6. 39 commands. The first command is the umbrella command. It's to walk. It's to walk worthy of the calling. And so for the next three chapters, he's going to give us detail what this walk is going to look like. It's the worthy walk. Now, this word worthy is interesting. It literally means to balance the scales, all right? And so you have this high position, you have great riches, as that word is used five times in Ephesians 1 to 3, great spiritual wealth. Now balance the scales with a noble and glorious Christian walk. But Paul's approach here is common. He does this throughout his letters. So for instance, in Romans, for 11 chapters, he describes God's mercies poured out on us in his son Jesus and by his spirit. Those mercies include the fact that he is just and a justifier because Christ, our substitute, satisfied his wrath on sin for those who would believe. Those mercies include the fact that we are justified by Christ imputed righteousness by faith, Romans 4 and 5. We're set free from the bondage of sin, Romans 6 and 7, and we have been given the Spirit, and we are now more than conquerors in Christ, Romans 8. These are the mercies of God that, that Paul lays out in Romans 1 to 11. And it's not till you get to Romans 12 
that he centers on the commands. In Romans 12, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, chapters 1 to 11, that you are to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So Romans 12 to 15, describe in detail what that looks like, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In Colossians 1 and 2, Paul describes what Christ has achieved for us as the image bearer par excellence, reconciling us to God. And then he has that transition in Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Colossians 3 and 4 describe what that life looks like. Galatians, in the first four chapters, Paul describes what God has done for us in Jesus in setting us free from the curse of the law. Christ has become a curse for us, he writes. And now, starting in Galatians 5, because you have been freed, you are to walk as free men. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, to the law. And then he describes in Galatians 5 and 6 what that looks like. And here, he does the same thing. He says, God has achieved everything you need to walk worthy of the calling. And now he's going to lay that out. Now, what is this calling? We have a calling that we have been given, entrusted. Well, uh, we saw in chapter 2, verse 10, for instance, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So we, as the people of God, are responsible to do good works. God doesn't need our works, but our lost neighbor does. In Ephesians 3.10, we see that the purpose of the church is to reveal the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, we are to magnify the glory of God in the church. And so we have this remarkable calling and we're to walk worthy of this calling. Again, worthy means to equal, to match, to balance one's position. And so Paul is saying, don't put all your weight on the doctrine and none on corporate practice or vice versa. Don't put all your weight on application and practice at the expense of doctrine and both are common. Some Christians are, are largely academic in nature. I've lived in that world for over two decades now. Uh, some Christians, they, they just love theology. They love doctrine. They love to read books on theology. They listen to podcasts and read blogs about theology and issues pertaining to theology. They listen to theologically oriented, doctrinally oriented preachers and lecturers, and and that's all good. In fact, I would say it's important. Paul certainly loved doctrine. He spent three chapters in Ephesians laying out crucial doctrine. But this kind of Christian does face a danger. This Christian, and the danger for this Christian is that he or she loves doctrine and theology so much that he stops there. She stops there. They love Colossians 1 and 2. They love Romans 1 to 11. They love Galatians 1 to 4. They love 
Ephesians 1 to 3. But then you get to Romans 12 and, and Galatians 5 and Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4. And this, this person says, that, that's just behavior stuff. I already know that. Conversely, some believers are so focused on behavior, on application, they love Romans 12. Uh, they love G Galatians 5 and Ephesians 4. But doctrine and theology is quite dry to them. They don't see it as relevant. You see, if one error is what we could call orthodoxism, the other error we would call pietism. Doctrine without practice leads to cold orthodoxy. Judgmentalism, a, a critical spirit Haughtiness, pride, arrogance. Practice without doctrine leads to all kinds of aberrations, all kinds of theological and doctrinal aberrations that can condemn a soul. And so doctrine and duty is how we have to think about this as we are seeking to balance the scales to walk worthy of the calling, doctrine is vital to our duty and duty is vital to displaying the glorious doctrines of our faith. And so Paul now in Ephesians four to six is going to lay out our duties, not suggestions. These are commands. And that brings us to the second part, the manner by which believers are to walk worthy. We've seen the mandate. We're to walk worthy. And now we see the manner. And the first thing he says, with all humility. How do you walk worthy of the calling? Right at the very beginning, he says, with all humility. Let me submit this to you. I think you would agree this is true of churches, it's true of marriages. It's true of parenting. Pride lurks behind all discord. Pride lurks behind all discord, but the greatest single secret of concord and unity is humility. You've just never met a person who's humble who's getting into spats with everyone. In an essay on undetected pride, it's a penetrating essay, Paul, uh, Jonathan Edwards gives us seven symptoms of undetected pride. I'm not gonna give you all seven, but I do want to reference two, two symptoms of undetected pride that I think uniquely kill the unity or the manifestation of unity in churches. The first is fault finding. Now, this, is this can be true in marriages and homes and families, but it's certainly true in the church as well. You see, while pride causes us to filter out the, the evil we see in ourselves, all right? That's what we do in our pride. We filter out the evil we see in ourselves. It also causes us to filter out the goodness we see in others. That's what pride does. 
We sift them. We sift those we are critical of, letting only our faults, their faults rather, inform our perception of them. And that is common in Christ's church. And it causes devastation. Edwards says, the eminently humble Christian, though, has so much to do at home, that is, in his own personal life, and sees so much evil in his own that he's not apt to be very busy with other hearts. I think that is a penetrating statement by Edwards. It's a true statement. That's why Paul would start out this list with, with all humility. A second manifestation of undetected pride that Edwards mentions of the seven, a harsh spirit. Those who have the sickness of pride in their hearts speak of other people's sins with contempt, irritation, frustration, and even judgment. It's common in families, marriages, and it's certainly common in Christ's church. Again, Edwards, Christians who are but fellow worms ought at least to treat one another with as much humility and gentleness as Christ treats them. It's a good word indeed. Given Jesus' example, think about this, the eternal son of God made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of man, given his example, humbling himself to the point of obedience, to the point of death that we might have, we who didn't even love God, we're not even subject to him, so that we might have relationship with God in Christ, given his example, none of us, not a single one of us, can ever humble ourselves too much. That is the absolute paradigm for humility, the incarnation. Given his example, not a single one of us can ever humble ourselves too much. None of us can ever rightly say, enough, I deserve better, so I'm gonna stop here. And related to humility, notice he says, and gentleness. Your translation may rightly read meekness. It's a, there's a semantic range there. It, it, it's meekness, it's gentleness. Some translations translate it one way or the other. Uh, Jesus promised blessings for the meek. Matthew 5, 5. And, and what is this? It, it was used to describe powerful horses. And we, we live in, in you know, thoroughbred country, don't we? And, and we can see these beautiful, powerful animals who are under the control of, you know, their rider. Uh, it, it's power under control. Proverbs says that a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Proverbs 15, 4. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 say that, or says that gentleness is the fruit of the spirit. What that means is, it, it, 
Christ embodied gentleness and meekness. And now the fruit of the spirit of Christ is now being produced through the person who is anything but gentle. Now, there are people who have a natural temperament. There are unbelievers who kind of have a, a, a natural temperament of gentleness. That's not what he's talking about here. This is a spirit-fueled gentleness. So some of the most gentle people you know, if they get tested, their lack of gentleness gets exposed. This is supernatural gentleness. James says the wisdom from above, James 3, is gentle. Now, given the harsh world in which we live, why should we be gentle? Well, first of all, it's commanded. And let me just tell you, I've said this before. When God, through his human writers, command us to do something, he's commanding us to do something that's not natural in and of ourselves, and hence the command. In our natural state, this is not something we are. And so the Bible is a rescue mission, all right? The Bible comes on a rescue mission. In our natural state, we're anything but gentle, especially when we're tested, and, and, and it causes devastation. It causes, causes devastation in our lives. It causes devastation in the lives of others. There's collateral damage with our sin. And it, in the context of Ephesians, it causes devastation in the witness of the church. And so we're commanded to be gentle. Remember, God's commands are not burdensome, 1 John 5. So whatever he commands us to do is actually for our good. You see, God's glory and our capacity to flourish are intimately related to each other. And so we're commanded to be gentle. A second reason we're commanded or, or we're told to be gentle is that gentleness woos people. Aren't that we're in the business about doing? Wooing people? Now, it's certainly the spirit who does that. But we're called to be people who, who show the attractiveness and the beauty and the glory of God in his son. Gentleness woos people. When we are harsh, or let me just say needlessly assertive, all right, we may win the argument. You may win the argument because you have more facts. You've studied an argument more closely than the person you're arguing with, and you know that. You may win the argument, but you will never win the person. And aren't we as Christians called to win people? And so gentleness woos people. Third, gentleness honors people. Gentleness honors people. Let me just say this. The subtext of hyper-aggressiveness with others the subtext of hyper-aggressiveness is superiority. We get impatient, we get harsh, because deep down, we think we're superior to that person. The, the subtext of gentleness, on the other hand, is you have worth and value. You are the image of God. That's the subtext of gentleness. You matter. And I regard you. A fourth reason gentleness is important, it gives people 
a living picture of Jesus himself. Wasn't it Jesus who said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle. Of all the ways he could have described himself, he described himself in this way, I am gentle. The one who created the heavens and the earth by his power is gentle. You see, outside of the word of God, the closest thing to Jesus himself, the people, the world will see is a believer, a Christian. In other words, they should be able to look at us and say, ah, I've got a faint picture here of what Christ is like. And your treatment of others tells them for good or for ill. But notice as well, he says, with patience, with patience, humility, gentleness, and with patience. I've thought a lot about that this week. Patience is the fruit of the Spirit. And so when you're abiding in Christ and you're filled with the Spirit, patience will be produced in your life. But patience, God's patience, is what led you to repentance. Romans 2, 4. You realize that? It was God's patience that led you to repentance. If he had not been patient with you, you would have been doomed from the start. And our lack of patience bears false witness to who God is. Our lack of of patience bears false witness to an accomplishment of our Lord Jesus Christ. Patience is the divining quality of love. Didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, love is patient. And it is a characteristic that every believer is to display. Therefore, as the the elect of God, Colossians 3.12, put on tender mercies and kindness and meekness and patience. This past week, I was speaking to a guy that trains me, works me out, the gym where I work out. And I've been sharing the gospel with him, and, and I decided that I wanted to be vulnerable with him for a moment because I think sometimes people that aren't Christians think that you just got to have your stuff together in order to be a Christian. And so I just, I wanted to give him a glimpse into my life how I don't have it together. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm living with a deep regret right now. And that regret is I was not as faithful a steward in my relationship with my mother as I should have been. I, I, I could have done more in that relationship. I could have called her more. I could have texted her more. And I just didn't do enough in my relationship with her. And then he opened up and he said, I feel the same way. He's an athlete. He, played, he plays in the Canadian football league. And he said, my grandfather died recently. And he called me one day, and, and I had to get off the phone for practice. And I said, I'll call you back. And I didn't call him back. And he said, three weeks later, he died. 
He said, I didn't do enough in my relationship with him. But then I had this encouraging thought that I wanted to share with him. I told him no human does enough in any relationship. We, we don't do enough in our relationship with our spouse. We don't do enough in our relationship with our children. We don't do enough in our relationship with our parents, our grandparents. We don't do enough in our relationship with our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And we don't do enough in our relationship fundamentally with God. And that's why we need a Savior. Because we have in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, one who did. In every human relationship he ever had, he did enough. He loved his neighbor as himself in every relationship. And in his relationship with God the Father, he did enough. He loved the Lord his God with his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then for those who believe, this Savior went to the cross, having fulfilled all righteousness for those of us who don't do enough in our relationships, right? He went to the cross and God's judgment on our failure to do enough in our relationships fell on him. And then God raised him from the grave signaling, if you will trust in Christ, his righteousness will cover you and his blood will cleanse you. And that's why we need a savior. But it also means when I don't do enough in any relationship, but Jesus' sacrifice atones for that, how can I be impatient with others who don't do enough for me? And that's why Paul says, be patient. God was patient with you. Indeed, notice, bearing with one another in love. Now that's related to patience, bearing with one another in love. Perhaps the distinction has to do with patience with those outside the body and patience in your circumstances. And here the distinction has to do with those within the body. Why do I say that? Bearing with one another. Now that, that phrase, one another, clearly is communicating that you are to literally put up with those within the body in love. I recently heard about a, a person who left a church. It did not happen here, but it happened just a few weeks ago somewhere, who left a church because someone said something mean to him. Now, my natural state, given what was said to him, would be, I get it, but that's not what Paul says to do. Paul says the Christian life is to bear with one another in love. The only reason we're even saved is because God bore with us in love. And now this isn't mere toleration. He says it's in love. Love is the quality in love, which, which fuels the preceding four, incidentally, humility and gentleness and patience, and here, bearing with one another. Love is the crown and the sum of all of these virtues. I mean, where does this love come from, by the way? Again, 
Ephesians 3, he prays that we would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And it's in beholding that love that we are now fueled to love the unlovely. Because God loved the unlovely. All right? That's how we're able to bear with one another who are unlovely because God bore with us who are unlovely. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, 14, above all, put on love. Above all, put on love, which binds everything together. And so patience may be referring to those outside the body. Bearing with one another in love is synonymous, but it's speaking to those within the body, one another. In other words, there's going to be plenty of opportunities in a church to bear with one another. And instead of leaving a church, see it as an opportunity to show Christian grace. In fact, I would say, if you only surround yourself with people that you don't have to bear with, you're not giving yourself opportunity to obey Jesus. Notice he says, we bear because, verse 3, we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, now that word eager, what does that kind of indicate? Uh, it, it, it reveals a sense of urgency. There's no reluctancy here. It, it, there's an urgency, but it's not to create unity. Let's keep that in mind. It's not to create unity, it's to maintain unity that already exists because of the finished work of Jesus who has reconciled us to God and to each other. But he says it's established by the bond of peace. That's why Paul would say in Colossians 3.15 in the sister letter, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That word rule literally means to umpire plays the role of the umpire. It rules over everything. Let the peace of Christ rule. You see, unity, as I've said before, not only impacts our witness, sometimes it is our witness. Jesus said in John 17, verse 23, the night before the cross, he said, Father, I pray that they may be one so that the world will know that you have sent me. Again, the reason there's so much written on unity in the New Testament is because it's not natural to us, but also because it's already been purchased for us. We're to walk in what's already been entrusted to us and because unity is a vital aspect of our witness. But as we're going to see in verses 4 to 6, and I could have preached these as two separate sermons, but I felt like we needed to deal with these together. It's not unity at the expense of truth. Unity never comes at the expense of truth. And, and, and so verses one to six, 4 to 6 rather is one sentence in the original language, and it's going to give us the, uh, the motivation for our unity. And what I want you to notice here uh, as we go through this is the word one. It's found seven times in verses four to six. And so in verses four to six, we see the motivation for this unity. 
Look with me in verse four. He says, there is one body. So verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Why? There's one body. Division is caused by what I call a spiritual amputation mentality. We don't see each other as one. We don't see each other as various members of one body. So the result of that is spiritual amputation mentality. There is one body. Now, the local church is not the church entire, okay? But it is the church complete. So this is not partial church when we gather at Fisherville. This is the church complete. You see, everything the universal church is, the local church pictures in microcosm. And so we're a microcosm. We are a body of believers which serves as a microcosm of the universal church of all believers. And so though the universal church is one body, it's the local church that preaches that. Universal church can't preach that. It's too ambiguous. It's the local church that preaches that, and hence the importance of unity. But notice, and one spirit, there's one body, the second one, there's one spirit. If, if the first is caused by a spiritual amputation mentality, that is division, division regarding this point is caused by rival spirits. There's one spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is to control and to fill every believer. But when I'm not controlled by the spirit, there's another spirit that is controlling things. My spirit, my fallen, broken, naturally rebellious spirit. What happens when you have two people who are not being controlled by the spirit, but by rival spirits? Division is caused by rival spirits, not the Holy Spirit, but our immaterial part of ourselves, the spirit man in us that is in rebellion to God at that moment. Paul has taught us that believers are sealed with the Spirit, chapter 1. We have access to the Father through this Spirit, chapter 2. We are a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, chapter 2. We are strengthened in the inner man by the Spirit, chapter 3. And we are graced with unity by this Spirit. There is one Spirit, and if you're going to have unity in a body, that Spirit has to control if you're going to have spirit, in, if you're going to have unity in marriage, or a home, or family, notice as well. Just as you were called, notice the third one. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Here, division is caused by vying, competing hopes. There's one hope. One hope. And that hope is a person, a living hope, Peter describes, who has been exalted already and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Division is caused by vying hopes. You have these hopes 
that are somewhere centered in the created order, and this fellow has his hopes that are somewhere seated in the created order, and so you have competing hopes, and it causes division. There's one hope. So when you have two people who are centered on the same hope, agree on the same hope, you have unity. And it's a sure hope. Notice as well, one Lord. Who do you think this is referring to? Well, he's already mentioned the Spirit. And in verse 6, he's going to speak about the Father, God the Father. So who is the, who is the one Lord here? Here he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, division is caused by competing lords. In a marriage, in a family, and in a church. If Jesus is not your Lord, you will have a Lord. There will be something or someone who controls you that you bow down to. Division is caused by competing lords. Paul says, there's one Lord. That Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice one faith. What's that referring to? That's not me believing. That's not the subjective act of believing, me showing faith. This is referring to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. These are the truths we must believe in order to have eternal life, in order to have our sins forgiven, in order to be the body of Christ. Often now you'll hear this phrase um, used uh, to minimize the importance of doctrinal distinctions. It's the ecumenical movement. But again, division is caused by people who have been catechized in a rival narrative, all right? That's what causes division. People who've been catechized and taught, that's what catechized means, by rival narratives, whether it's a political narrative or some kind of cultish religious narrative. And, and, and that's what causes division. There's one faith, and that one faith is what binds us. It's that one faith that keeps us united. And, and so there are those who turn this on his head and say, see, doctrine doesn't matter. Oh, that's the opposite of what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying here that the call for unity is a call for anything goes. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the opposite. Rather, this is a call for us to consistently consider and examine our churches to examine our denomination, which happens to be the Southern Baptist Convention, to make sure that they are faithful, that we are faithful to this one faith. Paul is saying, outside this one faith, there's no unity. It's a parody of unity. Paul is saying, we're not permitted to unite ourselves with those who have abandoned this one faith. So, for example, here's the reason I am firmly committed to the largest and most strategic Protestant denomination in the United States, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. 
I affirm every line of that Baptist faith and message 2000. That is the Southern Baptist Convention statement of faith. The moment the convention determines to do away with that Baptist faith and message or to rewrite it, to subvert those doctrines, we can't be united. But the convention hasn't done that yet. But part of that means, as well, as a member in a Southern Baptist church, I expect a pure gospel in our denomination and in our churches that is not tainted by worldly philosophies like critical race theory. And I expect us, and I expect the North American Mission Board to plant churches that abide by the Baptist faith and message, which means we're not appointing women as pastors, which has happened in a few churches. But when that happens, when we don't see our denomination the way we want to see it, I do not do like the world and cancel it. That is the natural response the world has to things they don't like. Here's what I do. I take all biblical measures I can to be an agent of change. I pray, I preach to this church, and I seek to disciple this church in the pulpit. I write emails, letters. We attend the convention, and we have our voice heard. And in issues of heresy, we call for discipline. And even for disfellowshipping of churches. Because true unity is in this one faith. He says as well, one baptism. We're, we're almost done. Division is caused. What does baptism mean? It means to be immersed. We are immersed in Christ by the Spirit. That's why Paul says there's one baptism. One baptism of the Spirit. We are immersed in Christ. Water baptism symbolizes that, right? And so there's one baptism. We're immersed in Christ by the Spirit. Division is caused by people immersed in something else than Christ. Now, they may be true Christians, but at that moment of division, their minds, their affections are not immersed in Christ. It's immersed in something alien to Christ. We are given the Spirit at our baptism who unites us to Christ. We are now in Christ. He is in us. And that's why one baptism is critical to unity. And then finally, one God and Father, the seventh one, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Division is often caused by an orphan mentality. We lose sight of the fact that we have been adopted by God the Father. That's how we call him Father. We're adopted. We are joint heirs with each other, joint heirs with Christ. And so he's our Father, which means he's imminent. That means he is intimate and relational and present. But notice, 
He is over all and through all and in all. This speaks to his supreme rule over the created order. It also reminds us, though, for those of us who embrace these seven ones, <laughs> that's what it means to be a Christian. For those of us who embrace these seven ones, whether you like it or not, we're family. Clark didn't like Uncle Eddie, but they were family. This means not only that we are beloved in God the Father, Jude 2, we should and must have family affection for one another. And, and so the first three ones, this is beautiful how Paul lays this out. We're almost done. The first three ones are centered on the spirit. Did you note that? One body, one spirit, one hope. The second set of ones, the second set of three ones are centered on Jesus, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and then the final one on God the Father. But if you've noticed here, the order is reversed. Spirit, Son, and Father. That's not how we normally lay out the order of the Godhead. Traditionally and historically and biblically, there is an order in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So why does Paul lay it out in reverse order here? Because he is arguing from the effect to the cause. In verse 3, he said, make every effort to keep the unity of spirit. But where is the cause behind that effect? Through the bond of peace. Who achieved that peace for us? Jesus Christ achieved that peace for us. But why did the Lord Jesus Christ achieve that peace for us? It flows, it, it flows from the love of God, the Father, who was over all and through all and in all. And that takes us back to chapter 3. Because if you are like me and you're taking this, these commands and these truths seriously, you're thinking, how in the world can I be humble in that situation? How can I be gentle in that relationship? How can I be patient given those set of circumstances? How can I bear with those people in love? It seems impossible. And Paul would say, correct in and of yourself. But don't separate this from chapter 3, verse 20. What does he say in chapter 3, verse 20? Now to him. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. According to that power. This is not you. It's a power. The power of Christ by the Spirit of Christ at work within us. To him be glory in the church. That is our motivation to walk worthy. Division says, chapter 3, verse 20 isn't true. He's not able. Division says that power that is at work within us isn't sufficient. Unity says, ah, but it is sufficient. Chapter 3, verse 20 is true. To him be glory in the church.
throughout all generations. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. I needed this. I have an inkling that many of us needed to hear this today. Thank you that we have these commands that do get in our business, but they're for our good, even as they're for your glory. Father, this, these commands were intended to be lived out in the context of the local church. That was Paul's intent. But they're also intended to be lived out in the home. Lord, based on the promises of, of Ephesians 3, that you are able, according to the power that is at work within us, give us grace as your people. Oh, Lord, as the people of God at Fisherville, oh, Lord, give us grace to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to bear with one another in love. May we be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in the church and in our homes and in every relationship that you entrust to us. To you be the glory in this church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And what better way to close out this service with that benediction. So let's, let's share, let's speak these words uh, as we adjourn today together. May this be a prayer, may this be a commitment, even as we trust in the promise of chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You may go in peace. May you go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.